We have now finished week 14 in the NFL season, and inside the pylon, the podcast is here with Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield to break down the biggest action from the previous week, as well as give you a little bit of a look forward to what we are expecting in week 15 coming up with a couple couple important divisional games as well as we're going to check in on the Carolina Panthers and their quest for an undefeated season as well. Uh, but as we always start our show, we have to give an update on the status of our potential singing. And Mark, I had nothing on my side this week. What, uh, what did you see? Yeah, nothing on my side, man. It looks like it's going to be you and me. Um, so I guess we'll start getting our vocal cords warmed up, I guess. Yeah, and I know we are. We're also going to have Jeff Lloyd on next week, and he has promised to sing, actually. So he's actually yeah. going to be. Yeah, that's that's what I saw on Twitter. So he potentially, he really should be our first uh, singing guest of the season, and I'm pretty excited for that. I'm very excited for that. Jeff's Jeff's a country music guy, and I, I like that about him. So. Oh, is he? I didn't know he that. Is. Yeah. Oh, I might have to do a little uh, little something with him. We may do a little Zach Brown band together or something like that. He's, he's a big Zach Brown fan. We've talked about that in the past. So, yeah, but I'm yeah, gonna, definitely. I'm looking forward to that. Now. I'm going to talk to Jeff. We'll get some of those harmonies going and see uh, see exactly what we can do there. But I do want to uh, start to dig into Week 14 just because we did have some interesting games there. And n- nothing that I think is dramatically shifting power this season, but potentially laying the groundwork for some battles going into next year. And yeah, I think so. And actually, I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball. This wasn't on our schedule. <laughs> oh, so good. We're, you know, we're going to fly a little bit by the seat of our pants here. But I want to take you and our listeners back to the days when the Inside the Pylon podcast was just a twinkle in our eyes, okay? Yep. You remember we had a phone call? We ran through a dry run of what this podcast might kind of sound like. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was back in, I think it was July. I was driving in my car, and, and we, we walked through like a little 25, 30-minute clip of just what we were going to kind of hash out. Yeah, and what, we, what did we talk about? The AFC East, right? Yep. And we kind of thought about, hey, you know, maybe, maybe this is finally the year where a team kind of breaks through, maybe... You know, at that point, the Tom Brady suspension hadn't been decided yet. So we were thinking, hey, you know, maybe maybe this is finally the year, Chuck, that a team knocks down the New England Patriots. And what happened last night? We're recording this Tuesday. What happened last night? Uh, last night, if I am correct, the New England Patriots clinched another division title. That's exactly right. Every It seems like it happens every summer where, all, you know, this is the year. This is the year that all, you know, Miami... Tannehill looks good. They've added some weapons. They signed Sue. Maybe this is finally the season. But year after year, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, they just keep winning that division. It's it's a it's an incredible run, don't you think? It it's it's an amazing run they've been on. And what I find even more more interesting about this is you remember just a week ago after that terrible loss to the Eagles, where the Patriots gave up 21 points on both special teams and also through a pick six. Right. We were people were talking. You know, they're, they're sitting in third place now in the AFC. They potentially could lose home field advantage for the playoffs, and boom, just like that, one week later, Bengals down and potentially down a quarterback for the rest of the year now, and Denver going down as well. And and really that Denver game. I want to dig in there and talk about what what we saw from the Oakland Raiders because I think everyone can agree that life in the NFL, it's more fun when the Raiders are good. I, I definitely agree with that. It's nice when you get you know the silver and black. It's going crazy. You get the black hole, the fans out there all decked out. Um, and it's great to see. And I think you know, we've talked a little bit about the Raiders this season. It's a young team with a nice young nucleus. I'm a big fan of Amari Cooper, that rookie wide receiver. 
Carr is doing some great things at the quarterback spot. And this, this was, I don't want to say it's a statement game from that team in the AFC West, but I really like the way that that Oakland team came out in that second half. And they've, they've got some playmakers on both sides of the ball. You talk about Cooper and Carr on offense, but Khalil Mack is starting to turn into a force on defense as well. He really is. I mean, you know, in that second half, it was kind of one of those things where it looked like on the defensive side of the ball, he just decided they're not going to win this game. You know, Denver is not going to win this game. He had, you know, how many sacks did he have in that game? Five? Five and a half? I I think it was like four or something. He's got, I know on the season now, he's up to 14 for the season. uh, And that is 14. He he leads the team in sacks there uh, for the 2015 season right now. But you go down the list of some of the the players that they have, and, and you get the sense that they are starting to build a contender. And I don't view this as a game that says, hey, we are the, the, you know, the big, big fish in the pond at this point but I think it's a game that simply says look we're coming and next year you're gonna have to Denver's gonna have to step up in order to continue to rule the the AFC West as they have for the last several years here and and in particular I start to dig into Derek Carr and just looking at the stats he's accumulated this year now which you know we're at the point where you can start looking at a full season of work and and not really be jumping to conclusions about players and you look at him, 62% completion rate, uh, 28 touchdowns to only nine interceptions, taking care of the ball, offensive line providing him pretty good protection, only 19 sacks on the year. Doesn't really have a ton of ability to run, but a little bit. He's relatively mobile in the pocket. And you get the sense that maybe they got it right with this guy. It's looking like they did. And, you know, I want to look at that their first offensive drive of the second half for a moment because you're down 12 nothing at halftime. You're on the road. You get the ball to start the third quarter. And that's a, you know, it's a crucial spot for an offense, especially a young offense with a younger quarterback. And they came out facing a, a third down right out of the gate. And he gets a big conversion. They get a nicely drawn crossing route against cover one to Rivera, their tight end, for a big first down. And they go right down the field and score. And you know, basically, it's that that's a you know response that hey, you know, maybe we're on the road. Maybe in years past, an Oakland team, a young team that's struggling, would kind of fold up shop, but they didn't. They you know, came right out, punched Denver in the mouth, and then, you know, Carr. I really like the way that he's moving in the pocket, that he's getting the ball out. Um, especially, I really like the relationship he's developing with Cooper. Cooper's been struggling with drops recently, so that's something to keep an eye on. But yeah, I mean, I think that. Oakland seems to have got it nailed down at the quarterback position. Yeah, I, w- I was going to ask you about that with Cooper because full season stats now, he's got 62 receptions on 113 targets, only about 55%. So he's actually been a little more inconsistent than some of uh, Carr's other options. Is that mostly due to, is, is it because of him, do you think, and just trying to get you know the catching skills to where they need to be? Is it because the two of them are not necessarily always on the same page? What have been the biggest reasons there. Well, I do think, you know, this is something that we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks, and we're starting to get to that point in the season where rookies, some of them tend to hit that wall. Yeah. Because we're getting now into an NFL season. They've been at it since, you know, early August. You know, a lot of them haven't had schedules like this, you know, in their collegiate ranks. I mean, Cooper, yeah, Alabama, they were in, you know, the playoffs last year, but so they had a bit of an extended season, but it's usually spread out. You get more buys, you get... A lot of time between you play that last game around Thanksgiving and then you're playing around New Year's Day. This has been week to week to week. So a lot of rookies, they hit that December wall. And I think 
that might be what's contributing to what we've seen the past couple of weeks. What, what about uh, what you've seen from Michael Crabtree? He's a guy who I think had been a little bit lost for a couple of years in the league, came out with a lot of buzz, was selected 10th overall by San Francisco back in the 2009 draft. As you remember, had quite a career at Texas Tech, some pretty memorable catches there. But until last year, had had been kind of a little lost. I know he lost a year to injury in 2013 and didn't really seem like he was fulfilling all of his promise, but seems to really have found a nice niche with Oakland here. And I think that's the perfect word for Chuck is niche because he seems to be like a guy that if he's if he's asked to be the number one receiver in an NFL offense, this isn't back at Texas Tech now where, like you said, had some great memorable catches. I remember in a night game that he won at the buzzer at the gun. The one right down the right sideline, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I remember I was watching that game live and was just going crazy because it was just a great moment. But, you know, now when, he's at, when he gets to the NFL, asked to be the number one receiver in an offense, drafted high, struggled a bit with injuries. Now he's a nice sort of component in a sort of well-rounded offense where you've got Rivera, the tight end. Seth Roberts is developing into a nice little option for Carr yep. as well. I kind of like what they're doing with him, especially in the red zone. He's a guy that seems to be around the football in the red zone, obviously with Cooper. Uh, so I think he just adds a nice little component. Um, so it's a great way to use him, use his skill set in relationship to the rest of the players they have on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, and let's chat now a little bit about the uh, the game that we saw between the Arizona Cardinals and the Minnesota Vikings. Vikings came in at eight and four, uh, going into Arizona, who uh, you know really has, has kind of put things back together after a couple shaky weeks in the middle of the season. But this Arizona team, and, and look, this was a close game. It was a pretty hotly contested game. Ended up with a twenty-three to twenty win for the Cardinals here, and Cardinals now really, I think, have cemented themselves in second place in the NFC behind the Carolina Panthers. Yeah, it looks that way. And, you know, I, w- there's a lot of discussion, obviously, about with what Carolina's doing, what Cam Newton's doing, and MVP considerations. And that's probably a debate for another time. But you'd have to put Carson Palmer in that mix there, you know, coming back again from the injury. Um, he's having a nice, nice season out there in Arizona. And you know, they're a team that, you know, you probably don't want to play in the playoffs. I mean, they've got a young, sort of aggressive defense. Mathau looks like an incredible defensive playmaker, doing all the things he did at LSU, all the reasons why people were excited about him coming into the NFL. Of course, there were some off-the-field issues, you know, with Mathau. But that Arizona team looks pretty solid. And, you know, I'd, obviously a Carolina-Arizona NFC Championship game would get a lot of eyeballs, I bet. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about two very strong teams and two teams that I think had some question marks coming into this season with both of them. With Carolina, I think a lot of people were saying, okay, you have Cam Newton and what else do you have? Is that enough to win? And clearly he's proven that at least to this point in the regular season, that's more than enough with the job that he has done. But a lot of people were also looking at this Arizona team and they were saying, look, Carson Palmer, I'm not sure if I trust him to stay healthy for a full season. And even if he is healthy, I don't know what he has left here. But we've talked about this before. The arm strength is still there. The decision-making is there. And, and he's pretty much clicking on all cylinders as well. And, you know, our good friend Alex Kirby is coming on in, in a few moments here. And, and I've, as I'm sure he would tell you, Bruce Arians is still there. And, yeah. You know, he's drawing oh, yeah. up some great stuff for that offense. But back to this Minnesota game for a second. Can we talk for a minute about that last play? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, definitely. Because I was looking at that this morning. I didn't watch this game live. So I finally got a chance to dig into this tape, and I know people were questioning the play call, the play design. There's one little thing that I want to focus on this this final play, 
where they had the strip sack from Franny. And if you look at the pre-snap alignment of Dwight Franey, okay. Bridgewater's in the shotgun. They have trips to the left with the tight end. And Kyle Rudolph is just set. He's got a really, you know, it's a short split from Khalil, the left tackle. Freeney is lined up to the outside of the tight end. Now, when he, Rudolph releases, he doesn't stay in to block. He releases. It's a deep flood concept where they bring slot receiver, Rudolph, on crossing routes to the right side, and the receiver on the right runs an out route. They're trying to get something along the sideline. But with that huge wide split, Freedy builds up so much momentum before he even makes contact with Khalil yep. that when he tries that spin move, Khalil, it's almost an unblockable block for him. And, and, and look, we've seen Dwight Freeney has been spinning since the day he came into the league. He's, right. he's, he's probably one of the best in the league at using that technique. And, and here, again, as you said, he's just got so much momentum that he's just able to carry himself right through that and, and right to the quarterback. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, and, you know, we heard a lot, a lot about this last year with Khalil. You know, PFF had a really bad grade on him, and he was one of the guys that said, look, you, you don't understand, you know, you're not there. You don't know the play calls. Obviously, when this happened, people were quick to say, oh, the play design. Oh, you know, Khalil let up a big sack. That was a really tough spot for him, I think. At being tasked to like make that kick slide to the outside, you've got Freddie with this huge wide alignment. Mm-hmm. I'm really surprised, having finally looked at this, that they didn't leave Rudolph in to help. Given that what you saw pre-snap, given the alignment, leave the tight end in at least chip or something to give Khalil a little help, especially on a play like this. You don't need to send all four receivers out into the pattern in this situation. You've got you're already basically in field goal range. It just a lot of stuff didn't really add up. So, you know, Matt Khalil, if you're out there, listen, I got your back on this one, okay? And, and what's interesting is I remember at the beginning of the season, uh, Dwight Freeney signed for, I believe it's pretty much the veteran minimum. Uh, what, is that right? I think so, yeah. It was, it, it was either the veteran minimum or pretty close to it. I know he's making somewhere around maybe seven or $800,000 uh, for the season. Actually, I'm looking now about nine seventy dollars as a salary, so just above that. But... A lot of people said, well, okay, that's just a contract. You know, there's, there's not really anything guaranteed there. He's probably going to get cut and not really do a whole lot. And he's kind of, he hasn't done a whole lot throughout the course of the season. But this is the type of guy in this type of situation, and most NFL rosters can't carry a player just for this type of situation. But it's, it shows that that type of talent, when used like this, still has a place. It's just so hard for teams to be able to carry someone like that. Right. And I'm, you know, listening to you say that, I flashback to the draft a couple of years ago i think it was when the dolphins drafted Dion jordan and mike mayock the great draft analyst and the nfl network made the comment that look the most critical area of of real estate on a football field in the nfl today is that five to seven yards behind the center i.e the quarterback position if you're an offense getting somebody to block for that position getting a quarterback to run from that position or to play from that position and if you're a defense somebody that can attack that position, that area of real estate on the field. It's a crucial element to today's game. If you can get pressure, we've talked about it a lot this season, seeing it, how it influenced Aaron Rodgers and that Packers offense when they ran into some pressure, couldn't get the quarterback protected, and it you know, spelled some problems for their offense. And you see it now. And like you said, you have a guy like Freedy just for this moment a couple of times a season, but it changes the course of a game, a game that they – might have faced overtime, could have potentially lost in overtime. Now they get another big win, and it's because of a play like that, from a player like that. Exactly, exactly. And Dwight Freeney now in his, hard to believe, 14th season 
out of yeah. the University of Syracuse, but has done a tremendous job. Now has 115 sacks over the course of his career. But let's swing over to the offensive side of the ball for favorite segment, our favorite segment of the week every week. That is the Harry Stamper All-Go Offensive Play of the Week. And, Mark, what do we have? Yes, sir. That's right, my friend. And it's brought to us this week by NASA, one of our, our, our first sponsor for this segment. And NASA would like to remind you that they help NORAD track Santa Claus and not just on Christmas Eve. And Chuck, we're going to talk about a team we haven't talked about a lot this year, and that's the New York Jets. Okay, what do we uh, what do we have? I know, I know, uh, we've been chatting a little bit uh, just on on Twitter and online, just talking about Eric Decker. Is that the direction you're going in? That's the direction we're going in. And they had a you know a blowout win against Tennessee, so you wouldn't think that ooh the offensive play of the week comes to us from a blowout game like that. But I want to talk for a moment about how the little things can add up to a big play for an offense. And we're talking about the first first quarter touchdown pass from Fitzpatrick to Decker. You know, they're facing, you know, it's a first and 10. They're on the 16-yard line. They're in the red zone. And they've got 20 offensive personnel on the field, two running backs in the backfield with Fitzpatrick and three wide receivers. And they've got slot formation to the right with Decker split out wide and a receiver to the inside. Tennessee has their 4-2-5 nickel package, and they'll run cover four, which is, you know, a four-deep type of scheme. And right before the play, they bring the slot receiver. They shift him from the right slot sort of a win look on the left and they'll run play action but what happens is the defense initially has a guy in the slot a cornerback and when the receiver goes away from him he slides down almost like a linebacker's position and the safety to that side he slides over a few steps as well and Decker's split out wide so when all this shifting and movement happens it just opens this big huge throwing lane and when he takes his release off the line of scrimmage he comes vertically for about three steps and then cuts to the inside like he's running a slant. Okay. Now in cover four in this scheme, that cornerback over him thinks he's going to have help to the inside from that safety. But with all the shift and movements that's going on, that safety's down near basically the middle of the field. Again, he's got outside leverage. That cornerback, Decker's already at the inside. He's shown a slant route. But then he cuts up vertically again. So you're thinking now maybe it's a little slant and go type route. Cornerback keeps you know, dropping vertically as well, expecting help to the inside. And then Decker cuts to the inside again on a post route. That safety drawn to the middle of the field is kind of peeking into the backfield a bit. But because of that shift before the snap, because of that motion, he's in no position to help on that route. It's just an easy pitch and catch. And, you know, I, I write about it. I talk about it just because it's all those little things that sometimes you don't even notice. You're reaching for your drink. You're reaching for a chip. You don't see the pre-snap you know, shift or motion, but it's a big element to a play, and it's a big element on this play, which is a touchdown for the Jets. A, a route like that, which has, if, if I count it properly, it looks like that's a triple move if I'm keeping up with everything. If, if, yeah, I, th- I think you could call that a triple is, move. I mean, is it starts what, vertically in, out, in, yeah. <laughs> is that what we want to call it at this point? Yeah, we'll, but, we'll roll with that. So it, it, when you're talking about that type of route, that's something that that's drawn up pre-snap. That's not Decker reading and just saying, "Okay, here's what I'm going to do." That's something that's put in and is pretty much the perfect play in this situation for that defense. Uh, correct? Yeah, I would think so because it's not just you know like we talked a couple of weeks ago about what's called the dino stem, where a receiver sets up a post route by cutting a few steps to the outside. This is a little bit different, where you know there's the cut ins up and up and again. So that's kind of drawn up, I'd say, in the, you know, obviously in the huddle and before that when they designed the play and put it together, they said, look, you know, this is a good way to get open to the in, inside, to the middle of the field. 
and we'll use a little you know pre-snap shifting in motion to hopefully get some space because remember it started with a big wide alignment from the wide receiver. What, why, do you, why, why do you think Eric Decker has flown under the radar so much this year? This is a guy who's on pace to have double-digit touchdowns, over close to 1,100 yards, and, and no one's talking about him, it seems like. That's a great question, and I, honestly, I don't know the answer to it because you'd think a guy with that kind of numbers playing in New York City would get a lot of attention. But it might just be the simple fact that look who else is playing in New York City. Obviously, you've got Brandon Marshall on the Jets as well, another well-known receiver, Odell Beckham. I mean, there's a guy that, you know, probably sucks up a lot of the wide receiver media attention in New York City because he's just such a tremendous talent who looks to be mm-hmm. on pace for what could be a record-breaking type of career. Yep. So then, obviously, probably the third guy in line that you talk about would be Eric Decker, and that's what we're seeing. When you, uh, obviously, you're, you're big into trait-based scouting. When you talk about the traits that Eric Decker possesses, what are his strongest attributes? What, what does he still need to work on? I, I mean... He's a guy that kind of, you know, he used the expression wins with. He, he wins. With, I like his footwork, and we saw it on display in this route that I'm talking about because he sets up the brakes well. And even mm-hmm. on that second cut to the inside, sticks that right foot sort of into the turf to the outside, shows a little shoulder move to the outside, and just sell that cut to the inside a little bit more. I really like the, you know, the footwork, the route running and things like that. I mean, he's not a guy that's going to overwhelm you with speed. He's not going he's not a burner. He's not going to beat you deep. Yep. But does the little things that a team needs, you know, from the wide receiver spot. I mean, you think like, you know, not like this is the best comparison, but if you think of a guy on the Jets that used to do things like this, you know, Wayne Corbett was a guy that won in similar ways with footwork, you know, nice sharp cuts you know, working to the outside and to the inside and over the middle, you know, a similar type of wide receiver. And, you know, it's not a one-to-one comparison. I don't like those one-to-one comparisons. But, you know, it makes sense that they do similar things in that mode. Okay, very good. Well, let's let's turn to look at the Inside the Pylon glossary. This is something that we take a look at every podcast just to fill you in on one of the terms that is inside of this massive glossary that we are building out. We are now uh, closing in on 100 terms, actually. We should be there within, I think, about the next two or three weeks. We'll cross that threshold, which is pretty amazing given that we just started this about three and a half months ago. And we are building this in coordination with Dan Dan Hatman and the folks at the Scouting Academy. And today we're going to talk about the tunnel screen. And tunnel screen, yeah. And, and tunnel screen is is a play that I think, and Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong. This is a play that I think really start to gain widespread acceptance, probably in the mid to late '90s. I didn't see it a ton before that. Yeah, you know, it, it's a relatively new concept. It's just, you know, offenses they're always looking for a way to get the ball out to playmakers, maybe in space, maybe on the edges with blockers in front of them. And this is just another way that teams are doing it. And like you said, it, it's kind of been a recent sort of innovation in the offensive game but you know what I like about it is you can show it to both sides of the field and you see that in the college ranks where they have package plays and you can show you know they have two slot formations you can run set up tunnel screen to both sides of the field and the quarterback can just pick one side or the other so Chuck why don't you kind of can you walk us through with this concept yeah tunnel screen it's it's pretty straightforward and it's it's pretty easy to identify what you typically see with it 
is you'll typically see it with a receiver that is lined up wide, usually at the numbers or outside the numbers. And he'll, he could be in motion pre-snap. Generally, he's not. But you will typically see him at the snap start to break directly in just behind the line of scrimmage. He may even take a little bit of a cheat step back and, and come back a little bit towards the quarterback as he comes back towards the center of the field. Quarterback's going to find him as he's breaking in. And really, the receivers as well as the linemen on his side of the field, they will be blocking in order to set up essentially a little tunnel generally between the hash and the numbers for him to run through. So your inside players will often be blocking, trying to wall men off to the inside of the field, while you'll also have receivers setting up to wall off defenders such as cornerbacks and safeties to the outside in some cases. So the goal here, it's not necessarily to create a big play where you're trying to you know, generate 20, 25 yards of offense. It's almost as a substitute for a running play. It's a different way to get the ball, as you said, in the hands of playmakers, in space, around the line of scrimmage to try to get them. You know, you're looking for typically, you know, six to eight yards on this play as, uh, you know, eventually you're going to end up with linebackers and safeties coming over to make a play. But it's, it's generally a relatively high success play that you can use to try to generate some offense in a different way. Yeah, and, you know, Thinking about the tunnel screen a little screen a little bit as we start to get ready for the college playoffs, a team that runs it very well and sometimes, like I said, runs it to both sides of the field on a given play and just picks based on numbers is Clemson. They do this a lot. Yep. And they'll set it up with you've got, say, that dual slot look. They'll show a tunnel screen to both sides. They'll release offensive linemen to both sides of the field, and they'll set it up by having the quarterback – Deshaun Watson, a Heisman finalist, meet the running back at the mesh point to try to maybe freeze the linebackers just for a moment, preventing them from getting a quick release to the outside. And then Watson will just pick based on field position, based on where the ball is on the field, right or left hash, based on alignment or maybe the matchup that they want, and then swing it to one side or the other. And by that time, you've got linemen flowing downfield in front of it. They made a couple of big plays on a drive against Florida State to kind of close out that division. They had two third down situations and they ran a tunnel screen on both of those occasions to convert those third downs. So when you're watching Clemson in the playoffs, look for this design, the tunnel screen. You'll you'll see it and hopefully you'll think of us. And Mark, this is also a play, we have a guest coming up in just a second here, but Mark, this is also a play that you can run out of a number of different formations. It doesn't necessarily have to be trips or anything like that. You can run this and have tight ends coming out to block out and so forth. You have a number of variations here. Yeah, I mean, you could do it if you think you're your standard pro formation, pro alignment with the tight end on the end of the line of scrimmage next to the tackle and you just go flanker outside. You could still throw a tunnel screen design that way and just have tight end left tackle and maybe even the left guard flowing outside as that flanker like you said cuts forward down the line of scrimmage down the line towards the quarterback takes the pass between the numbers and the hash mark with two or three blockers in front of him having come from the line of scrimmage outstanding well i do want to go to our uh, our first guest today he's actually our only guest that we have on today believe it or not and that is alex kirby he is a former high school and college football coach you can follow him on twitter at alex j kirby and Alex, appreciate you coming on. You guys, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And from what I gather, you are a busy man right now with, I think, uh, a book that just came out a couple weeks ago and another one in the pipeline, it sounds like. Yeah, I, uh, I was fortunate enough to get hooked up with Coach's Choice uh, to kind of update and add some new stuff to Rex Ryan's uh, 46 defense book, and that will be out uh, 
here in time for the AFCA convention, if any of your listeners are, are headed to that in uh, San Antonio in January. Uh, but also, as you mentioned, I have, a, I have a new book out on the greatest show on turf, that, that passing attack with the Rams back in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, and, and I actually I picked up a copy a couple weeks ago and was, was pretty excited about it to be able to read through it uh, over the Thanksgiving break and now into uh, December here. And what, what I find most interesting about it, and maybe you can talk in more detail about this, is just the sheer variety of different plays and different sets that they operated out of. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to that time in the in the football world, if you will, I mean, this was sort of pre-Randy Walker early spread offense that you saw in college football. I mean, that that didn't really take hold until much later, you know, in, later on in the mid-2000s. And so you still had a lot of traditional offenses kind of ruling the day in the National Football League. The West Coast offense was, was pretty dominant, as it still is at the pro level in a, in a lot of ways. But I think Mike Martz was, was really revolutionary in that he took, a, as you said, a lot of different things from a lot of different people, used a lot of motion shifts, misdirection, but did it while at the same time not including sort of the up-tempo offense that we think of today when we think of the spread attack. I mean, you're still talking about a team that, that put up incredible numbers but still huddled most of the time, which seems, you know, almost unheard of today. Was was the attack that they ran at that point really the perfect storm be, be, between you had this great offensive mind running the show and then obviously you had some outstanding talent on the field as well. You talk about the skill position players there. I mean, it's just a, a treasure trove of talent. Well, and that's the thing that uh, I, I think Mike Martz and Andy Coach will tell you is that uh, the players win games, but you've got to put them in the right position. And Marx's style, um, his style has stayed pretty consistent through his whole stint in the National Football League. He's trying to find players that, that match that, even you know during his final days uh, with the Chicago Bears as the offensive coordinator. But I, think, I, I don't think it's so much a case of Marx adapting his style to meet the needs of his skill players, because I think he would have tried to run the same style regardless. But you're right. I mean, they had an absolute, uh, you know, just a, a stacked roster at that point, and, and it was the perfect storm. And they managed somehow to hit lighting a bottle when, when Kurt Warner took over, and, and the rest is history, as they say. So I think that it's definitely true that it fit his incredible athletes very well. Um, but I, I think that he would have tried to do that in some form, regardless of who he had, honestly. Alex, you just mentioned sort of shifting and pre-snap movements and things like that. And Chuck and I just got done talking about that, you know, before you came on. How integral was that of an element to the Marts offense? Well, it was very big because, uh, you know, he he actually used, uh, for all the movements and misdirections, he actually used uh, about 10 to 15 basic concepts, and I cover a lot of those in the book, but he wanted to mask, mask them and disguise them in a lot of different ways. I mean, it's really not unlike a lot of successful coaches who have a certain list of things that they know they can do well and want to find as many different ways to run those certain things, whether it's in the passing game or the run game. So I'm not going to sit here and say that Martz was you know, a vanilla guy who only ran a few things. Of course, he, you know, he had huge playbooks, and he, and he did a lot of different things with the guys that he had. But at the same time, he knew when it came down to what worked and what didn't. So, 
I think, you know, any coach who at that level, and the NFL is kind of getting away from that now, I think, uh, with using a lot less shifting and motion, although some guys still do. But the, the trend is moving away from that. At the time, Martz was kind of on the forefront of that. Alex, uh, we've talked previously about Bruce Arians with you and how he is a guy uh, who is, is re- pretty innovative at this point. Would you put him in terms of when you look at the coaches out there today, is he one of the guys that you think is really on the cutting edge of where football offenses are going in the NFL? Um, you know, that's interesting because we just talked about Mike Martz and how he has his style and how he likes to do things his way, and he probably would have done something similar regardless of who he had on his roster. I think Arians is, is kind of uh, the opposite. I think he, he definitely has a style. He likes to attack down the field, of course, and take chances, but he's not married to any particular scheme. He's going to find ways uh, to attack you, and he's going to come into a game with two or three things that you've, you haven't seen yet. And I think that is a, that's a great way to keep defensive coordinators guessing. But he is definitely one of my favorite guys to watch as far as scheme goes because there's always something that uh, you either haven't seen or he takes a, a scheme that a lot of people run and he adds his own little spin to it. Uh, it it's very interesting to, to dive deep in there into depth and, and watch that team on film because they always have something uh, new that you haven't seen before. Who else do you like to watch out there right now in terms of offensive coordinators? You know, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but I, I think that uh, Daryl Bevel, uh, regardless of what you think about the Super Bowl, I think he's still one of the most interesting guys from a purely scheme perspective. He's always got some interesting stuff. Now, do they always execute? No, uh, as we as we saw. But uh, he is one of my favorite guys to watch because, you know, from a quarterback perspective, Look, Russell Wilson, he, he deserves every dollar of that giant contract he got. But at the same time, we, both, we all know that he's not the most talented quarterback out there in the National Football League. And those receivers on that team, until they got Jimmy Graham, you could argue they really didn't have a, a true number one threat in the passing game. So he's had to make do with, uh, with not, not a lot of talent in the passing game, and he's managed to do it very well. Took him to two straight Super Bowls. We'll see what happens, I mean, uh, in the future. But... Uh, from a scheme perspective, he is definitely one of my favorite guys to watch. Alex, another team I wanted to ask you about quickly is Oakland. They just came off that big win against Denver. What have you seen from this Oakland offense and how they're kind of using that young core that they have and bringing them along as they're starting to win some games here? Well, I think beyond the X's and O's, I think what you're, you're finding is that the culture in Oakland is changing. And, and I say that as an outsider obviously. Uh, but I, I think just, just the fact that they brought in uh, Jack Carlio, who, who has had success in the NFL, you know, Reggie McKenzie, that general manager, seems to have drafted very well, uh, picking up Khalil Mack, who I think is still, even after Sunday night, is still the, the, the sack leader in the NFL right now. And Derek Carr to Amari Cooper, everybody knows about those guys. But, you know, they kind of resemble to me, and the, the best example I can think of uh, to compare them with is, you know, Peyton Manning's early days with the Colts. Because they seem to have found, you know, a dominant pass rusher, you know, obviously a young, talented quarterback and a go-to threat at receiver, and they've got a couple of talented backs. And I think that you can build around that. You know, they're going to be uh, much better in the in the years to come. And I'm excited because I'm a Raiders fan, you know, and so it's it's been a long decade and and then some for all of us. So uh, it's it's been fun to watch this year. This team, they've really. Other than the first week against the Bengals, 
they've really been in, in pretty much every game they've played. So uh, I'm excited to see what they can bring to the table against Green Bay this week. And Alex, Mark and I said we were talking about the uh, the Oakland-Denver game earlier on the, this show, and we said it's always more fun in the NFL when the Raiders are good. Oh, I, I absolutely it just agree. Is. You know, that, yeah, historically, it's always they always bring a little bit more intrigue. Although I think the Patriots have kind of stepped into a little bit of that role uh, the past couple of years as well, the kind of the bad guys in the NFL. Yep, yep. And, and obviously, uh, we talked at the Open here uh, about your book. What's the easiest way for someone to go about buying that? Well, you can find all my stuff at alexkirbyfootball.com. That will redirect you to uh, my Amazon author page. And uh, I just put out, actually, a, a new post today uh, on profootballstrategy.com. It's where I talk X's and O's, so you can check that out as well. Outstanding. Well, Alex, certainly appreciate having you on today, and uh, to you and all your family, hope you have a uh, safe and happy holiday season, all right? Thanks, you guys. Appreciate having having me on. All right. Alex Kirby there. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Alex J. Kirby. And I I didn't know that Kirby was a Raiders fan, actually. Did you, Mark? I actually did. I saw that on Twitter yesterday. That's why I wanted to sneak that question in there, (laughs) because I knew he'd have something... I knew he'd like to get a chance to talk about his Raiders for a bit, but yeah, great having Alex on, and definitely look forward to that. You know what he's adding to Rex Ryan's four six defense book. That should be exciting. Yeah, that that should be big. And I'll tell you, I I bought his book uh, a couple weeks ago. I've gone through it, and it's 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 well done. It, it breaks down, I think, a lot of complicated concepts to a pretty manageable level. Whether you are an expert at X's nose or you're just trying to get started, he does a really good job with it. So I would highly recommend taking a look there. Uh, we've got eh, about two, maybe three minutes left, and I know we've got a couple games uh, coming up this weekend that we wanted to chat about. First one being what is, I guess you could call a critical AFC South matchup uh, for potentially the division title here between two teams that are both below 500 right now, the Houston uh, Texans and the Indianapolis Colts. Not only that, you know what else we get this week? Saturday football. Oh, it's back this week. I it's forgot back. about that. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Jets Cowboys. I'll take it. It's, it's still count. It's still technically football, um, but yeah, no that that uh, Houston um, Indianapolis game. I mean, that might decide the division. Although, let's not forget Jacksonville. They've kind of you know they've snuck back into this AFC South race a bit, and they get Houston Week Seventeen. And, and, well, and in particular. We don't know the quarterback status for either of those two teams right now, Houston or Indianapolis, correct? No, we don't. I mean, I think we saw, I just saw that Hoyer, it was confirmed a concussion, so he's going to have to go through the concussion protocol. You know, that's kind of up in the air. And yeah, in Indianapolis, we don't know if they'll bring Luck back. Hasselbeck's, you know, been sick and banged up most of the season. So uh, somebody's going to win that game. It could it could end in a tie, but you think somebody's going to win that game? Well, we do potentially have the uh, the chance this year to end up with two divisions that have uh, winners with below 500 records, I believe, with the NFC East also having a shot at that. So that's something that we're going to be watching there. Also, you've got uh, Carolina at the Giants. And I-, I know that a lot of people are probably going to scoff at me when I say this, but I actually think this could be a challenge for Carolina here, okay? Yeah. I, I-, I mean, go ahead. No. I-, I-, I may be skewed by how tough – the Giants played the Patriots earlier this year, but I think that that team is is more talented than they play on a weekly basis. I think effort has been a problem with them uh, in terms of generating consistent effort week in and week out. I know they have some problems on the line, which which you know can be inconsistent for them, but I think that's a talented team that could give Carolina some trouble here. Especially you talk about having a wep- weapon like Odell Beckham. 
that always has to give a defense something. You know, that, that battle this weekend between him and Norman is going to be outstanding. Oh, that's gonna that's like must watch TV right there. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that you know that's a tough little challenge for Carolina to go on the road and you know try to keep their streak alive. But uh, speaking of streaks, I wonder if this streak comes to an end. Do you know the last time an, a quarterback from the University of Alabama won an NFL game? Uh, last time a quarterback from University of Alabama. I'm guessing it's has it even been done in the 2000s. 1987. Yeah, I was going to say. Jeff Rutledge. <laughs> so we're going on, what is that, 28 years now? Yeah, yeah. But that might come to an end this week. McCarron's going to get the start. Yep. Cincinnati's up against San Francisco. San Francisco's obviously having a down year. We might see that streak come to an end. That's very exciting for a guy like myself that, yeah, I was an A.J. McCarron fan. I mean, you can't help it. The chest tattoos and everything, you know. I'm thinking about getting one of those. Are you? Yeah, you couldn't see it under all my chest hair. Little holiday present to yourself? That's it's the best present you can give. It keeps on I'm, giving, right? I might right? Stun, start a little GoFundMe for that. Yeah, let, let, let me know. My girlfriend will be happy to hear that. Yeah, although I might have to solicit, you know, tattooed designs from readers. That would be great. I thought. I mean, usually I was just going to go with probably you know a kicker right in mid stride or something like that. I was thinking more of like a puncher getting flattened on a return by a defensive. Guy. I could do the uh, the Pat McAfee tackle from a couple years ago on Ooh, Trenton that'd Holiday. Be a good one? That'd be pretty good. Maybe I'll do something like that, full color, just take up the whole chest. There you go. Not bad. So We just lost a ton of listeners, I bet, who probably just lost their lunch as well. Yeah, the good news, though, is that we're just about done, though. That is good. So that's good. We are done here on Inside the Pile on the podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Inside the Pylon. Follow us on Twitter at ITPylon. And we still have all of our great content up at InsideThePylon.com. For Mark Schofield and Chuck Zada, we'll see you next week on InsideThePylon.com, the podcast.